right, everybody, welcome to the Base Brotherhood. This is Alexander the Great, a.k.a. Lead Pacer, and I am joined today by Max Morton. Max, how you doing? Great, great. Good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, well, it's, it's great to have you here. You know, I discovered you on Twitter, really, I would say in the last few weeks, and I saw you posting just very common sense, you know, pragmatic views on what's been going on. And, you know, you got a lot of people behind you, then all of a sudden you're adding thousands of followers a day and people really appreciate your content and what you're putting <laughs> out there. And I just, you know, am, am enjoying witnessing it. But yeah, I wanted, I'm looking right now at your Twitter profile and a little bit about your background as a retired, you know, Marine and former CIA paramilitary operations officer, amongst other things. Let's just start off and learn a little bit more about you and uh, and your background in the military. And if you just want to go ahead and fire when ready, we'd love to hear it. Sure. Well, <clears throat> I'm an old guy. I started off in, in the Marine Corps after I graduated from uh, college and was a Marine infantry officer. Uh, eventually, I ended up getting fleet assessed into aviation and I flew attack helicopters among some other different types of aircraft. I was the first Marine pilot selected to uh, assess and join the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, which is an Army unit. And I, I did that for about four years and then uh, went back to the Marine Corps and eventually commanded an attack squadron, a light attack squadron, uh, retired and, and got picked up by uh, CIA where I served uh, 10 years in the Special Activities Division. It's now the Special Activity Center. And uh, I, I served as a paramilitary officer and uh, a little bit of time as a contractor. But I graduated from the, the CIA's Tradecraft course, their language school. I've uh, deployed and worked probably on you know every continent except for Antarctica, which I'm pretty happy about. I really never had any intention of <laughs> wanting to go to Antarctica and see what that was about, but, you know, but, uh, <laughs> don't blame it, me. Yeah. I, I can't say I'm an expert in anything, but I've, I'm well-traveled and I've got a lot of boot prints on my ass. And, uh, so I have learned a few things and, uh, you know, some of the stuff that I've learned has been through the school of hard knocks. And, uh, I, I write now, uh, not as much as I used to, I kind of took a break over the holidays and then we got overrun with this, uh, Ukraine stuff, uh, and then I'm a, I work as an analyst for uh, Ford Observer, which is a, a private intelligence uh, organization, a company that oh. provides uh, intelligence information for businesses and for people. And it's focused mostly on, you know, how different events that are happening in the world right now impact Americans here at home. Because, you know, nobody really cares about the, the price of tea in China, really, unless it impacts folks, you know, in Miami or Los Angeles or you know, Wyoming or something like that. People want to know about what's what's going to make their life hard or what's going to make their life better. And that's, and that's what we do over at Ford Observer. No, that's excellent. No, we appreciate the background. You know, so uh, I'm curious where, you know, you've had this, you know, exponential rise of followers on Twitter. How long have you been on the platform? Um, it looks like you, I'm looking right here, it looks like you joined in July of 2021. So what was your like motivation to get on the platform and then what do you think it is that, um, you know, in, in recent weeks that has just kind of sent you, you know, um, you know, up to stratosphere as to where you are now? Uh, you know, I, I really don't, I was never a big fan of social media. And, you know, I grew up in the, mm -hmm. in the pre-internet era and uh, about, you know, uh, midway through my uh, career in the Marine Corps, you know, boom, the internet popped up and it was fantastic. And there was all this stuff going on. And, and I never really took off on social media. I was, uh, when social media first started off, I was working at the CIA and I was in a sensitive position and the social media thing re really wasn't that great for my particular job in the, in the operational security sure. requirements of it. So I just kind of skipped over it. And then after a while, I just grew to hate it because it just seemed like a hellscape where you know, everybody, everyone was, was really trashy to each other. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks, you know, bullshitting this and bullshitting that, excuse my language, but yeah. But I started uh, yeah, writing I again and for the Federalist and over at American Greatness. And my lovely spouse said, hey, you got you need to get on Twitter so you can, you know, 
get a feel for what Americans are thinking right now, um, you know, what they're feeling. And so you can have that input and tune your writing a little bit better to it. So I, you know, I was like, uh, okay, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do the social media thing. Mm -hmm. It's not that I'm not technically proficient. I, I have a degree in computer information science and, and as well as environmental sciences. And mm -hmm. so I, I, I'm, you know, familiar getting around the computer and the internet and all the, the travails of that, but it just wasn't my bailiwick. And then I, you know, I jumped on it and, uh, and started really appreciating the information I was getting from it. You know, you have to really filter it out and all because there's so much, <laughs> there's, there's so much fluff on it, but you really got a better idea of what my fellow Americans were thinking and what was really important to them. So that, that's kind of my Twitter story. No, and that's great because, you know, Twitter, it can be a cesspool of a lot of negativity and a lot of misinformation and disinformation, which we're seeing right now. But if you know how to curate it and find the right people, the right accounts, the right news sources, it can be a tremendous tool. And it can take some time to do that. I know that it has for me, but I feel like I've kind of got it to a point where I'm, I'm, I'm able to identify those people and following the right people that can bring those people into my frame. And then I can help take those people and, and push them on and, and help others. But, you know, it, it can be difficult for a lot of people that are, you know, tuned into legacy news sources and Twitter can be very, very difficult for them to navigate. And I think that's one of the problems we have now. Twitter, for all of its misgivings and, and foibles and, and issues, it still is kind of um, it, it, it kind of can channel the voice of the crowd. And it's something where, again, you know, someone like yourself with your background, I think a lot of people are going to find value in your perspective in this interview and the things that we discuss. And um, they're just, they don't know how to find you that easily, Max. So that's, that's the main issue. And um, we want to, we want to spread the word. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So, so let's, so let's talk a little bit about, yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what's going on, you know, in Ukraine and Russia, because again, it's, it's, this is dominating our conversation. You know, we went from, nearly two years of COVID and everything that, that went on there to where, you know, you think about just a couple months ago, I remember trying to travel, you know, overseas in December. And as somebody that isn't fully vaccinated, I wasn't able to get on a plane and go to my destination. And there was a lot of ambiguity around what the rules were. And it's, it's crazy because here we are two months later, you know, and everything has changed and our, our conversation and our consciousness really all across the developed world. And, um, I just like to, you know, throw it over to you and have us, you know, get your perspective about what's going on. And maybe we can kind of start off with, you know, Putin's motivation to go into the Ukraine and um, what are all the underlying factors behind that decision? I'd love to hear your views on it. Right now, and I'll give you my views and I'll tell you one thing. I, you know, I'm not like, a, you know, a prince of the foreign policy establishment. I never was, you know, I'm, I'm the bull in the China shop guy, speaks truth to power and isn't right all the time, but generally I managed to come out on top, you know, at least 50% of the time. So I, I feel pretty lucky about that. So, <laughs> but I'll, I'll give you my, yeah. uh, my unvarnished opinion on, on what has happened to date and what's going to happen in the next, you know, several weeks. Uh, a lot of folks don't understand, you know, Ukraine and, and how we got to the mess that we're in. And I think, you know, most people couldn't find it on a map before maybe 2014. And, and, and even then, a lot of people couldn't find it until Russia parked 175,000 troops on its border and started making, you know, belligerent uh, threats to Ukraine and, and the U.S. and all, all the European allies. But uh, I, I think the issue with Ukraine is, uh, is one of the great power struggle between the United States and the former Soviet Union, which is now the, you know, the Russian Federation. For years after the fall of, you know, the wall in Berlin and, and the Soviet Union dissolution, the U.S. looked at Russia as, you know, some backwater former has-been country that, you know, had, a, had the GDP of Texas or something like that and, and really would never amount to a great, you know, power threat to to U.S. dominance in the world ever again. Um, 
And so we started expanding NATO and improving, you know, our alliances in Europe and Eastern Europe and in the countries that used to make up the former Soviet Union and, and, you know, the buffer states around that. And that's kind of what led us to the situation we're in right now is, as we were doing this, Russia was pulling itself up by its bootstraps from the dissolution, you know, in the in the revolution that happened, uh, the civil unrest, and you know the the dominance of the oligarchs in Russia. Uh, Putin kind of got that under control, and uh, and he started raising the consciousness and awareness of the Russian people. He started trying to improve things uh, in Russia, and it, it started to improve Russia's power projection and and geopolitical sway and kind of weight in the world. And all the while, we're expanding our alliances and NATO in, into these former Soviet bloc countries that border right along Russia. All this is going on. There's, there's like an undercurrent of conflict because Russia is, is starting to be seriously concerned about NATO, which they see as, you know, this Cold War throwback alliance, which is always been a significant threat to Russia's interests. It's not that Russia wants to take back Eastern Europe and roll into Western Europe, you know, a la, you know, Nazi Germany or something like that. It's just they think that the U.S. and its NATO allies want to do that to them. So the, the big problem, I think, that resulted in Ukraine is the misunderstanding or the, the failure to understand or the just straight up, you know, ignorance in our foreign policy establishment and pushing the edge on these these buffer states along Russia, get them to join NATO and some kind of, you know, almost like some cheap schoolyard bully thing. Um, Russia eventually, you know, after sending signal after signal after signal, eventually decided, hey, we're not, we're not going to be able to handle this. We're not going to do this. We're not going to allow NATO to expand any further, especially into Ukraine, which a lot of people don't understand is the actual birthplace of Russian culture. It, it, Kiev and Ukraine existed before Moscow existed and, you know, the rest of, you know, of Russia. So, it, you know, it was one of those things mm -hmm. where there was it was a line in the sand and they weren't going to they weren't going to take it. And we failed to read that. Um, Although some people within our establishment, like the CIA director Burns, you know, for years has warned that, hey, if we keep trying to push uh, Ukraine into NATO, Russia is going to respond aggressively and, and we're not going to like it. But, you know, people don't want to listen to that. And while all this is going on, uh, our ruling class decided that, hey, we've got this really cool scam going on where we vote for uh for foreign aid and loan guarantees for these developing countries that have come out of the former Soviet Union. But what we really do is we just, mm. we, we send them that those billions of dollars, but then we, we use our own NGOs run by our own political, you know, friends and, and alliances to basically suck that money back up and then turn it around and send it back to the U S where it eventually cycles get cycled into political parties as, as political donations. So while all this money laundering thing is wow. going on, everyone's getting rich. You know, you saw uh, President Biden's son, you know, get the Burisma $80,000 a month deal. You know, everybody's raking in bucks. Romney's kids, Pelosi's, you know, the whole big list of people's kids who have, you know, million dollar jobs in Ukraine. Go figure. But uh, I, I think probably what happened is, People got really enamored with their own importance in the foreign policy establishment. We kind of thought that, hey, we can do no wrong. We can create our own reality and we can push the, the limits because we're the boss. And that's that kind of created that conflict. And so Russia decided to park 175,000 troops on the Ukraine border and basically take back Ukraine. And, and they're serious about it. So you can see, I mean, they're they're going at it right now. Um, but uh, one of the big things that I want to point out is that, you know, Putin took a really huge gamble doing this, invading Ukraine against the desires of, of some of the really, really important people, some of the really important oligarchs in Russia. He basically stiff-armed them and said, yeah, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. So he's fully committed to this. And, he, and this isn't something that you know, can go wrong and he can shrug his shoulders and go, oh, well, you know, better luck next time. 
Uh, he's tied to the success of this military operation. If this military, military operation goes south, then, then he's going to get the boot or the bullet, and he knows it. So, you know, the, the, con, the idea or the belief that somehow we're going to, you know, drag Putin through the mud and kick him to the curb with this Ukraine resistance, and he's going to run back with his tail between his legs, that's more fantasy role-playing from the foreign policy establishment that got us to this point in the first place. Putin is, is fully committed. He will result to very draconian measures to succeed in this endeavor because he knows that his back's against the wall. He has no choice. Yeah, he very well may be literally fighting for his life if this doesn't work out. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, a lot of reports right now on social media and, and through, again, legacy media that it's not going well for him and that, you know, he's had these meetings with oligarchs and explaining, you know, that the West is, you know, it, it's an evil empire and an empire of lies and that, you know, he's doing his best he can. And, you know, the thing it's so it's it's very deceptive because, you know, and you see the shots of like, you know, him at the end of this very, very long table with people at the very end of it. And like they're saying this is a man that's not connected to his people. And it's like people don't have any understanding whether or not it's the way they always ha have meetings. And so I would ask you, is are there any cues or anything that you're picking up? that on how this is going for Putin? Is it, is it going as expected? Is it going, you know, I mean, better than expected? Or is, he not, is it not going well at all? And he has reason to be concerned. Can we draw any kind of conclusion after less than a week of the invasion? I, I think we can a, a little bit here because, you know, everyone was okay. kind of shocked by what happened with you know, the initial invasion and kind of the slow movement and some of the setbacks that they experienced. Um, but I, I'll say this, uh, anybody who's been involved in, you know, big military operations and big moving pieces, you know, has seen the same thing in the U in U.S. operations before and allied operations. I mean, war is a, is a tough situation and Murphy is right there on your shoulder the whole time. So it, you're, you're hardly ever going to get a situation where everything goes smoothly. I mean, you know, they, everyone says, hey, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in their face or, you know, the, first, you know, the plan's great up until, you know, the first contact. That's kind of what happened with Russia mm -hmm. here. But I, I think right now the tide is kind of turning. In, and I don't mean the tide is turning in terms of like who's winning or whatever. I think it's turning in terms of the of the tactics that are going to be used in, in this war. So uh, we saw uh, Russia invade initially. They were they norm their normal doctrine is to use massive amounts of indirect fires, precision fires, in advance of maneuver forces, and they didn't do that. They came in with these small self-contained battalion tactical groups. And, and pushed them up into, you know, the Don, the Donbass area, uh, conducted amphibious assault mm -hmm. on the Sea of Azov, uh, pushed in from Belarus, and, and then it attempted to basically do a decapitation strike on the government uh, in Kiev with that air assault into the Antonov airfield, which eventually got, you know, pushed out. Um, and people were kind of like, hey, this isn't, this is kind of not what we were expecting from the Russians. And I think what we saw there was, you know, uh, Putin and, you know, his, his Russian advisors and generals, you know, they all understand that Ukraine is, you know, the birthplace of Russian culture. And there's a strong tie between Russians and Ukrainians, uh, not just in their language, but, you know, in, in their religion and, you know, their, their culture, like I was saying before. So the objective was to take Ukraine intact as much as possible and not have to resort to the traditional Russian doctrine, which produces, you know, horrible scenes like, you know, Chechnya and, and what happened in Grozny. Um, so their idea was, hey, let's let's do this on the light, see if we can push up into Kiev, do a decapitation strike, change out the government with pro-Russian, you know, officials, and then you know, we'll have the country intact. It'll look good. It's a good PR move for Russia if there's not a lot of rubble and dead civilians in the streets. That didn't work out. So now they're bringing in the pipe hitters, the, the more well-trained divisions, the best or the better armor and, you know, air force and uh, missile strikes to kind of take 
take Ukraine and consolidate on their military objectives. And that's the kind of the turning point that we're at right now. I mean, just in the last 24 hours, we've seen a significant change in, you know, Russia's uh, willingness to accept collateral damage in the major cities like Kharkiv and Sumy and Kiev and Maripol. So, you know, I think the way this is going to go here in the next week or two is uh, Russia is going to use maneuver warfare to envelop Ukraine forces in the east and possibly down in, into the south, just north of Maripol. They're going to envelop those forces and basically neutralize them and attrite them uh, using a technique called kettling. And, you know, if you're a BLM or Antifa follower, kettling is what the U.S. cops do to them. You know, they surround them and then just basically beat them down and haul them off in the paddy wagon. Well, that, that old strategy is an old German World War II tactic. The Russians also use kettling. It just means surround your enemy, isolate them, cut them off from escape or support or reinforcement or resupply and just trite them down with indirect fire like artillery and, and uh, MLRS grad rocket strikes and then, you know, go in and clean it up. So I think that's what's going to go on in the south and the east. In the meantime, they're going to encircle Kiev and then kind of bring some dire consequences to the Ukrainian people, attempt to do kind of a behavior modification thing where, hey, you know, you can keep fighting us and you can live like pigs with no running water and electricity and bombed out streets, or we can come together, you know, shake hands and kind of work together for a, a better future because, you know, there's not going to be a future without Russia. So let's all, you know, let's all consolidate around that idea. And I think that's what's going to happen over the next two weeks. Um, or that's the, that's the Russian plan over the next two weeks. What actually happens, uh, you know, it's too early to tell. And I think a lot of it hinges on, you know, the, the ability of Zelensky to, and his officials to stay in Kiev and, and maintain kind of pseudo control of the government. I think as soon as Zelensky leaves, then then all bets are off. And I, I think that Russia will install their own leaders and, and the overt conflict in Ukraine will, will cease. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Zelensky because, you know, he is being, you know, praised, you know, all, all across, um, you know, Western media as a hero that's standing up for his country, standing up for his people. And so, you know, he's um, really beloved by a lot of people already outside of Ukraine. And, you know, my thought process is, well, you know, let, let's get through this whole thing and see what happens at the very end of it. Because, you know, from my perspective, you know, it, it, it looks very bleak unless outside forces intervene that Ukraine's going to be able to, it, you know, emerge victorious against Russia or hold them. It's this, it's not going to happen. Um, so how can he minimize casualties on his own side and find some kind of exit um, that, again, minimizes losses? Or, you know, is this going to be something that's prolonged and that, um, you know, he'll get a lot of encouragement, potentially support from the West, and there's going to be a, pro, you know, a, a longer conflict with more lives lost. Do you have any read on which direction he might be going in? Am I, and, and am I looking at this the right way in terms of what may happen? No, I think you're looking at it the right way. I don't think we have a read on which way he's going to go with this. And I, I posted something on, on Twitter, uh, not to like shamelessly plug my tweets because, you know, they're not always all that great. But uh, I posted something on Twitter uh, just a couple hours ago. And it was, it was basically, hey, what is Zelensky going to do? The Russians have, have taken the gloves off. It's obvious now looking at Kharkiv and Sumy and uh, what's happened in Maripol. Uh, so is he going to break like the oak or is he going to bend like the willow? And this is this mm -hmm. is something that is troubling for a lot of folks that have experience in unconventional warfare, irregular warfare operations, and, you know, kind of the dirty politics that happens with military interventions and asymmetric warfare, is that there is no way that Zelensky and Ukraine is going to remain free of Russia without some type of massive intervention by NATO and the United States. And if that happens, then the war will expand to incorporate most of Europe and probably end up in a World War III scenario. And despite all the hand-wringing and the cheerleading and the psyops from the UK side 
about ghosts of Kiev and sniper grandmas and all of that. That's just not going to happen. We're not going to risk a World War III over Ukraine. You know, as much as I don't want to see the Ukrainian people get eaten up by the Russians, it, it, it's in nobody's interest to start a World War III in Eastern Europe. And, you know, in, after we've just started to recover from this COVID, you know, insanity and these huge economic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cratering events a- across the globe, that's, that's not going to help. So the idea that Zelensky was going to be able to hold off the Russian invasion and, re- and keep a free and open Ukraine, anybody who thought that was, was smoke and crack. And so what is his actual <laughs> end state here? Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like, if, if you know mm-hmm. that you're not yeah. going to be able to, to sustain your country, then what's all the fighting about? Cause right now all that fighting is killing Ukrainian, innocent Ukrainian civilians, and it's destroying Ukrainian infrastructure. And I would say, you know, if I was king for the day or the week or whatever, and I had to sit down next to Zelensky, I would be telling him right now, bend like the willow. You know, we don't want Mm -hmm. Ukraine to be, you know, consumed by Russia, but you're not going to be able to stop this tide. And if you listen to the foreign policy establishments in in Western Europe and the U.S., they're going to lead you down the road. They're going to use you as an expendable, you know, item to kind of poke the Russian bear and try and implement changes in in the political environment in Moscow. That's not going to necessarily benefit the people of Ukraine. And if you really want to benefit the people of Ukraine, it's time to stop blowing up your own buildings. It's time to stop giving the Russians, uh, you know, a, a reason to blow up your own buildings and destroy your infrastructure and kill your people. It's time to get a real organized stay behind operation going where, you know, bring the Russians in and absorb them and then death by a thousand cuts. Never enough, you know, to basically result in them blowing up the, you know, Department of Transportation in Kiev or the, you know, the mayor's building in, in Kharkiv or something like that. It's never enough to, do, to go that far. It's what we call gray zone activity. But it's always enough that it's just a horrible pain in the ass, thorn in the side, miserable, money consuming, you know, type event, eventually resulting in the Russians kind of backing out and relinquishing control of Ukraine back to the people. And in order to do this, you know, Ukraine, number one, has to basically give up the idea they're going to join the EU or be a member of NATO. They have to accept their role as a buffer state between the West and the East and kind of play each side against the other while, you know, not generating, you know, hatred or violence against them by, by from the East or the West. So it's kind of a tricky thing, but the people in Ukraine can live free if they live under that model right now. And that's, I think, what I would advise Zelensky is, yeah, you want to drive the Russians out, but the time to stop the Russian invasion was before it started. Once that started, you're at the point of execution. And the only tool you have is military, and you don't have the military force to stop the Russians. So what you really need to do is look at the long war model. For the next 10 years, you know, Ukraine is going to be, should be in like a gray zone activity which is just seeking the death by a thousand cuts, you know, modus operandi to eventually convince the Russians that it's far less expensive. It's, it's far easier for them to just accept the buffer state uh, idea with Ukraine, back out, don't try and pull Ukraine into the, into the Russian Federation's union state idea. And, you know, just kind of shake hands and go their own way. Um, it's, you know, because other yeah, than that, that's, it's just going to no, Chechnya. That's a, yeah, that, that's a great assessment. And it's something um, you think about the quality of living for the average Ukrainian and, and what it's been like. You know, I, my understanding is the per capita income of, you know, Ukrainian is, is very low. And, um, you know, while having great resources and being really the breadbasket of Europe or Russia, I guess, depending on I've heard both of those phrases used. 
but a place with fertile soil that's great for industrial agricultural farming. I actually know a guy that was, um, you know, an engineer from the USSR, but of Ukrainian descent. And he, since the fall of the USSR, he's invested a lot of resources in Ukraine and agricultural farming. And of course, I'm sure he hates what's going on right now because he's going to lose everything that he invested in. But I think about, you know, beyond the business interest in the Ukraine of the West, you know, for the average Ukrainian, what is their life going to be like, let's say, once this whole thing is over? I mean, obviously, there's going to be emotional, psychological scars. But is it is there any kind of a you know positive scenario, let's say, in, or in five or 10 years for them, where their life could conceivably be the same or better? Or is it inevitably going to be not not as good um, as it would have been if the if Russia hadn't invaded? What are your thoughts on that? I think at this point, you know, it's we're looking at five or ten years before Ukraine could possibly get back to the, you know, the level of prosperity that they had prior to the invasion. And I think they'll only get back to that if they understand the, the current situation and, you know, work to minimize the damage to their country right now. Because let's face it, even if the even if we weren't worried about all the infrastructure that's being reduced to rubble right now in the various cities in Ukraine, you know, there's not going to be any foreign investment coming into Ukraine, not with the Russians and the Ukrainians fighting each other like this. And certainly not with, you know, with a authoritarian occupying, you know, Russian police state sitting on top of the Ukraine government. You know, I, I don't see too many people rushing to invest money in Ukraine at that point. So, no, uh, no, you know, what I'm saying it, what we need, what we, yeah. what we really need to look at is, Hey, how, how do we win the long war? When I say we, how does Ukraine win the long war here? You know, what strategy do they need in order to persevere, to persist as Ukrainians to be, you know, to keep that, that national Ukrainian mentality and, and, and their culture alive and, that's, you know, that's why I say, hey, bend like the willow, look at this as the long war. Stop thinking you're going to, you know, throw the Russians out Red Dawn style. The way you throw the Russians out is you you get them, you bring them in and and you give them, you know, everything that they ask for and death by a thousand cuts. You want to be in Ukraine? Come on into Ukraine. And then you just make their life miserable. It's just, make your you know, hell. subtle, yeah, <laughs> subtle sabotage, yeah. every little thing. You know, nobody coming in from Russia is appreciated. It's like you're an outcast. It's, you know, it's like, you know, being some white guy from the mainland and moving to Hawaii and then and everyone kind of gives you the side eye because, <laughs> you know, you're right. the you're that white asshole, who, you know, who represents everything that took Hawaii from, you know, the native Hawaiian Islanders. You know, I mean, Realistically, I don't know if, if you've ever been to Hawaii, but I, I moved to Hawaii and I was kind of shocked by that attitude. But at the same time, you know, I understand the resentment, you know, I mean, so much of that island is right. just bought up and used to as, as tourist spots for, you know, mainlanders to come in and, you know, have their vacation. And, and a lot of Hawaiians, mm-hmm. their standard of living is pretty low as a result of that. So, you know, that's the kind of environment that, that you want to put the Russians into. It's just like, hey, yeah, you're here, but you're not really welcome here. And and we'll never really welcome you here, you know, because we're Ukrainians. And, and that, that state of friction, that, that state of mm-hmm. insubordination, you know, not just morally and culturally, but, you know, in, on the business side too, eventually, you know, they'll if you do it right and you and you do it incrementally i could see the ukrainians you know getting back to running their own country in you know in a decade and uh i think that's a better option i mean i'm not ukrainian so here i am like selling this stuff to them but i think that's the better option i mean it's got to be very i mean yeah i mean i can only imagine what it's like you know we i've never been in this kind of situation most of us haven't where you know, you've been through all of, you know, you've been in this, you know, tug of war, this push and pull between East and West, particularly, you know, older generations. And now you're in this situation again. And it's like, when does it ever stop? And, you know, do you leave the country? Do you stay there? Do you fight to the end? I mean, I I have no idea. I'd love to find somebody from Ukraine that can actually, you know, you know, help us understand the psyche of what many, and I'm sure it's a mixed bag, Max. I'm sure it's, it's all, 
different kinds of emotions and feelings and what people should do. You know, we have a good friend from Ukraine who lives in Austin, Texas, and she was trying to get her mom to come. She was actually just there a couple of weeks ago and was trying to get her mother to come back and she wasn't able to. And, you know, she was on the phone with her the other night and this woman I'm assuming is in her seventies, if not eighties. And she can hear, I think she lives in Kiev. Um, I thought it was Kiev, but apparently it's Kiev uh, now. And uh, her mother was, you know, hearing, you know, the blast in the background. I just, it, it's your heart goes out to the people of Ukraine that they have to in, endure and have to go through this. And I, I personally don't know what I would do. You know, I, I just can't, I can't say that I know where I would stand if I was Ukrainian today. Yeah, I mean, so I, I want to talk it, a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and finish no, I, I'm just saying it's, and, and I don't know either. I mean, I, I'm just talking from an irregular warfare standpoint and kind of divorced mm -hmm. from this, the, the entire situation. I'm not like emotionally attached to Ukraine. I'm not one of these people running around, you know, with this anti-Putin obsession. You know, to me, it's, you know, I, I got this at arm's length. I mean, I spent a lot of years fighting for other people's freedom overseas, supposedly, only to find out that that's kind of bullshit. Uh, so this this time around with Ukraine, I'm kind of <laughs> like, hey, I, I really hate to see what's happening to you guys. I mean, I really don't want to see that. And I wish you the best. But, you know, I'm not kitting up and heading over there. And, and I'm not telling my kids to kit up and head over there. This is something that you guys need to work out. So... No, I, I, I understand your We situation. need to talk a little bit more about that, about, yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit more about a general exhaustion that um, Americans have with intervening and participating in these conflicts that are, you know, may never be resolvable over the long term. But I want to talk a little bit about what the Russian people may be going through right now, um, because they're, you know, the ruble is plummeting in value and it's being, you know, killed on currency trading markets. Um, you know, they've been cut off from SWIFT. Um, you know, the, the, the Russian elites and oligarchs are, put, you know, having tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars that are being confiscated, maybe permanently erased, um, that they'll never get back. And, you know, the people, you know, the, you know, the regular Russian, you know, they're, they're losing social media access, they're being censored. Um, there's all kinds of things. They're going through a hell of a time, I'm sure. And I think, you know, the, the will, the resolve and the national spirit of the Russian people has got to be um, being tested right now. So, you know, I guess, you know, my question for you is, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about the mindset of the Russian people. Are they, um, you know, Putin, my understanding is Putin's approval ratings had been dropping a little bit. You know, he had been, you know, I, I think he had been as high as like 80 percent approval rating a couple years ago. And he's dropping into like the low 60s. And so this kind of a invasion can kind of rouse the spirit of the Russian people. Like, okay, we're going to go, you know, reclaim this, what, what was formerly ours. But, and this is me just, you know, speaking on what I've heard. Um, but now there's severe repercussions that are going to affect them in terms of quality of life. Um, what do you think they're going through right now in terms of, are they questioning, like, what's the point of all this? Should we be, this is going to really hurt us? Like, why did we do this? Or were they on board with Putin from the beginning and thinking that this was a good idea? You know, I'm not a Russia specialist. I should, I should actually get, get my wife in here because she is a, a Russia, uh, specialist <laughs> who, who speaks the language and, you know, has spent a considerable amount of time there. But uh, I, I think, you know, looking at this from, you know, from the standoff, the Russian people have never really, a, a large segment of them have never really been like Americans, you know, patriotic, flag-waving, uh, you know, do-or-die kind of folks. They're, they've been uh, me, my tribe, me, my family, my tribe kind of people. Now, there is a certain segment of the population under Putin who have kind of uh, recharged that patriotic fervor and, and are big believers in the union state and, and a strong Russia. And, and that, that to Putin's credit, that's definitely an increase from what it was under the year, you know, during the years of Gorbachev and Yeltsin and, you know, the whole laundry list of mm -hmm. grifters who passed through 
you know, the, the Kremlin, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, mm-hmm. I think right now the most of the Russian people are just like, uh, you know, this is like another rock in my rucksack. And they, you know, they, they're just focused yeah. on putting food on the table, having a job, you know, not getting run over in the Moscow traffic and that kind of stuff. So this is a rock in their rucksack. Some of the more enlightened folks, yeah, they're all up in arms and they're protesting. You know, they're kind of like the first world, you know, uh, white wine women uh, that we have in the, in the U.S. They're out in the streets making a big fervor. And the Navalny crowd, you know, the mm-hmm. political opposition, as small as it is, they're, they're out there saying, hey, this is the wrong way to go. Which, you know, realistically, hey, invading another country is probably not the right way to go. So they are correct. Um, And then, you know, and then you have the nationalists, the Russian nationalists who are, you know, like, hey, my country do or die kind of thing. So uh, I I don't think that that collective group of, you know, Russian citizens is going to have that much sway on what, you know, Putin is going to do in, in what the military is going to do in Ukraine. I think there's a lot of attention paid to the oligarchs and they are definitely taking a hit right now with the, mm-hmm. the ruble plummeting. But I want to say that right now, um, yeah, it looks dire for the ruble and, and Russia's got booted out of SWIFT, but China is going to offer Russia entry into SIPs. And it's that Renminbi, you know, based, uh, you know, hard currency exchange and payment system. And, to, you know, if we if we want to look at this realistically, the Chinese currency has an inflation rate of about 1%. U.S., you know, what are we looking at now? Seven, eight, you know, realistically, maybe 10%. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's already a lot of people that are in, in Western Europe that are debating the, you know, the wisdom of staying, t- uh, you know, chained to the dollar when, you know, the U.S. has this, these massive deficits, um, the spending's out of control, and the inflation is, you know, skyrocketing. So I think Russia is going to recover the ruble once they get into SIPs and, you know, they can get back to business as usual. And, and China's president, uh, is, Xi Jinping, you know, said that just on Friday when, when he had, after he had the uh, phone conversation with Putin. You know, they're going to offer Russia entry into SIPs and, you know, that and that should smooth things out, um, you know, for Russia on, on the international market. Also, you know, if, if you notice the Biden administration sanctions did not include any, you know, petroleum products, that's kind of a big hint that that mm-hmm. Russia is probably not going to take a sustained hit on their economy over this. Uh, and I think the rest of the hand wringing and sanction stuff, like you know, getting booted out of the, you know, the international soccer league or you know, federation or whatever, that nobody cares about that. I mean, really, nobody cares. Yeah, they've been getting in trouble for years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Olympic stuff, I, they can't even call themselves Russia. They have to have some kind of a, like a special group, a basic like a club of athletes from Russia that are participating in these kinds. So they're used to being in timeout, but still finding a way to participate, you know, yeah. in many things. So, um, you know, you make a good point there and, and, and something, you know, I've been thinking about, and it's interesting, people don't know this, but it's like, you know, the Western world, as in like, you know, EU is 500 million people, um, North America is 370 million people. It's less than a billion people out of a 7 billion population in this planet. Now it, it's the, it's a rich, you know, area, but, there's a huge market for Russia outside of just Western Europe and America. I mean, Brazil is not denouncing this. Mexico is not denouncing it. Um, Gazprom just signed a mega deal uh, with China uh, to supply them with natural gas on top of another deal that they had. And of course, they have a pipeline. And so there's, um, and you know, China is basically colonizing Africa, you know. And so there's, you know, in my view, the... um, the world, you know, balance of power is shifting eastward. And I'm not saying it's immediate or it's something that's going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years. But over the next, you know, 50 years to 100 years, you know, we're going to see a huge shift back eastward. And um, I don't think a lot of people, you know, really think about that very much. Uh, They think about what's right in front of them here today and that everything is going to be great, no big deal. But, um, 
the economic repercussions of this and moving away from the petrodollar. Um, and also think about the money that Europe is going to have to spend now on their own defenses, where it's not going to be a free ride anymore. And you're going to have, you know, the U.S. be the big bad wolf that's going to defend you. And, um, you know, and, I, and I've said this on Twitter is that, I, you know, and I've been to Europe and it's, it's a beautiful, wonderful place. But in many cases, it's a decaying civilization living amongst the glorious ruins of ancestors past who are men far greater than they. And I kind of think that's the case in, in, in Europe. And this is going to be, you know, Russia looks bad and it's going to hurt them, you know, certainly in the short term, maybe in the long term. But I just can't think that Putin and the, um, you know, the, the, you know the, the people around him haven't gamed this whole thing out and planned it out in every contingency they've considered and are willing to execute. You know, I, I've. I just can't envision that they haven't done that. So, yeah, I mean, um, that was a lot. Um, go ahead. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, they may not have gamed everything out, but they're certainly not going to just roll over yeah. and die because Joe Biden said some mean words to them and kicked them out of the Swift Club. I mean, they're going to do whatever it takes right. to tread water and keep their head above water. And, and, and you know, that's something that, that we have to understand, too. If we boot... Russia out of out of Swift, and Russia goes to SIPS, and then China's like, "Hey, mm -hmm. yeah, we're going to de-dollar too, and we're just going to use SIPS." How many other countries will go with Russia and China? I mean, already look at how many countries in Asia are going with the Belt and Road Initiative, and have switched allegiances. Mm -hmm. I mean, Cambodia, the Philippines, Thailand are all you know all have arms deals and Belt and Road Initiative deals with with China and they were they were all you know pretty staunch allies of the US for years the Philippines the same way you know the Philippines has a election this year um, and the front runner for the for the presidency you know is Ferdinand Marcos's kid you know his nickname's Bong Bong I, you know, I don't know where he got that but Bong Bong you know Marcos is the front runner <laughs> and he's already come out and said hey I'm like pro-China. <laughs> yeah, I'm pro-China, yeah. and and we're going to go with China and not the U.S. So we're we're losing allies across the globe because China's outplaying us here. So if Russia and China set up their own economic ecosystem, I, I'm just guessing they're going to be able to pull a lot of folks with them, especially if the dollar it continues to look less and less viable as reserve currency. And in, in the end, we would have done that to ourselves. You know, this, that would have all precipitated from the mistakes of pushing NATO in Ukraine, the NATO in Ukraine issue and ending up with this, you know, messed up invasion by Russia, you know, for almost foreseeable consequences. Yeah. And Max, it just shows that, um, you know, the dollar, you know, it's not only backed by U.S. military might, but it's trust. It's trust that the United States will fulfill its obligations and that it'll be there when you count on it. And the fact that that China could supplant the United States as that country is incon inconceivable to me that that could ever happen, that we could allow for that to happen. But we see it happening right in front of us. And um you know, it doesn't, it, it's not a world that I, you know, it, with all the issues that I have with the United States, our, our leadership particularly, and how we've allowed for this decay, you know, to manifest. Um, at the same time, you know, vacuums get filled. And China being, you know, the global hegemon and having the predominant, you know, global currency. Is that a world, and that's not a world that's going to be very pleasant for us, I'd assume. I mean, you, you, you think about consumer goods and the fact that we've been able to use the dollar to, um, you know, buy Chinese imports at, at great prices, you know, far below what they would be. But if that were to change and the dollar were to be revalued, um, we'd be paying a hell of a lot more. We wouldn't be able to buy all the trinkets, electronics and things that we do. Our standards of living would go down dramatically. How long do you think it takes for this, um, you know, this shift to take place? Where, I mean, do you think it's, first of all, do you think it's assured that the dollar will be replaced as the global reserve currency? And if the answer is yes, 
What's the time frame that we might be looking at? I'm not sure that it will be because I'm not sure that we will continue okay. down the road of their current monetary policy and, and foreign policy. I mean, I think, you know, I think we are spiraling down the drain right now, but I don't, I'm not certain we will still be spiraling down the drain next year at this time, or for that matter, in, in 2024, or 2025. And I think that's definitely within the time horizon of, you know, of the dollar being removed as, as the reserve currency. So, or of de-dollarization. So I, I think it's preventable at this point if we, if we kind of, take control of our country, our foreign policy, our monetary policy, our domestic policy, and kind of shake it hard, mm -hmm. get it back on, you know, upright and on the right track. I, I think we can save it. Um, uh, but, you know, that that's a big if. And, and I don't know how exactly to do that. I don't, I don't have the, the strategy, yeah. you know, mapped out for that. Uh, but I, America always seems to bounce back, get back up on its feet and, you know, I can't help but have that idea that we're that we're going to do that here. I think enough people now are seeing, you know, the fallacy of the COVID, you know, all the COVID lies that happen. And, and I don't mean conspiracy theories and all that stuff. I just mean the straight up lies from government officials and the, the supposed ruling class and experts, straight up lies that ended up killing Americans, that ended up mm -hmm. cratering our economy, that put so many millions of people out of work that completely changed our life that pushed us into this woke ideology nightmare that we're experiencing which which is seeking to destroy all the institutions and the culture that has made america great for you know si since the settlers first came to here came to the united states from europe so i think you know i think things are going to change um i just you know i can't say when or or how that's going to happen but I can't see a lot, all these Americans just laying down and letting themselves be run over by this woke, you know, steamroller. And that's a hopeful message. I love hearing that. And, you know, the base brotherhood is something where, you know, we want to provide great content, actionable advice for young men, particularly, you know, provide, you know, any, everybody would like, you know, hear what you have to say. But for my question to you, you know, kind of wrapping things up is, if you're a young guy out there and you have a real sense of duty, you love your country, you hate what's happening right now, you see what's going on with woke culture, and um, you know you you want to know what what do you want to do with your life? Um, let's say you're like 25 years old, and you're looking to um, you want to be part of this you know reformation project and turning things around. What are things you should be looking to do? I think the first thing is you have to, you have to be independent. You, you have to, you know, on two fronts, economically, you need to strive for economic independence, you know, lower your debt. I mean, lower your, your expectations if you have to financially in order to get rid of your debt. And you got to put yourself in a situation where you're not beholden to anyone. You've got, you know, a buffer, some strong savings, some investments, you know, in your bank account enough to carry you over so that if you get in that situation at work and you just got to say, Hey, listen, I'm not doing this. You know, I'm not going to play this mm -hmm. game. You can get up and walk out on your principal and, and get yourself into, you know, a, a situation that is more suitable for, for your uh, morals and your culture. And you don't ever want to get yourself in a situation where, you know, you're trapped where you're a slave, and you've got to do this just to put, you know, food on the table. So that economic independence thing right. is huge. Okay. Along with that economic independence goes networking. You've got to network because networking, mm -hmm. making friends, making alliances, getting mutuals, you know, on your side, that allows you the mobility and the freedom to go where you need to go to, you know, to stand on your principles and to protect your interests. Once again, you know, if you if you get to that point at your job or whatever, and you just got to say, no, I ain't getting the vax or no, I'm not putting pronouns on my business card or whatever, you know, or no, I'm not going to not go to church because, you know, you're telling me that Christianity is bad. You know, when you get into that situation and you got to jump ship, you want to have a network 
that you can rely on for you to go and find a new place to work, you know, a new place to live, whatever, whatever it takes. So that networking thing is huge. And then, I mean, the last thing is you have to really look at your country and say, what can you do to make this situation better? And it always starts locally. And, you know, I, I mean, I spent 20 years in the Marines and 10 at the CIA. And where was I focused on? I was focused on, you know, getting into the next war, you know, getting a promotion, getting a certain qualification, going to jump school, blah, 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 you know, what have you. All the stupid stuff that 20 and 30-something-year-old guys, you know, focus on at the expense of all the rest of the important things. So I got through 30 years of my life before I realized how important it is to participate in, in America in your, in your local culture and society and to be a leader there. And that takes, you know, that takes some, uh, you know, some effort and it takes some courage to put yourself out there, but you really have to, you have to look at that and, and find a place for you to fit in and be a leader. You know, if you know what this country needs to, you know, needs to do, if you have an idea that can make this country better then you need to stand up and, and, be that leader that can that can guide your you know your community in that direction and and not be afraid. So, I have a friend who you know uh, was at the CIA with me, and you know he got out and just said, you know this is messed up. We just have crappy politicians, and I'm tired of dealing with them. And he went down to the courthouse and and it, you know put in his papers and he's running for political office in South Dakota. And, you know, that was a, that was a ballsy move. You know, it took a lot of courage and, and, you know, he's a conservative guy and he says every day he gets people come up to him and, and scream at him and tell him he's a Trump supporter and a Nazi and a fascist, which he's none of those things, but because he's a conservative and he's not a rhino, you know, people feel like they need to take cheap shots at him. But he stands his ground and he's like, hey, this is exactly why I'm running for office, because this is this is something we need to change. We can't have this kind of hatred and dialogue in this country and I'm going to fix it. Very brave man. My you know, my hat's off to him, you know, Ron Moeller up in, uh, you know, in South Dakota. So, uh, you know, I think those are the things that young men need to, to think about is they need to be they need to be economically independent. They need to have a network of friends and mutuals, family, you know, that they can rely on and that can rely on them in, in tough times. And then they need to seek out those leadership positions that where they are, are suitable and they have the ideas and, and, you know, where they can actually make a change and a difference in, in their community and their country. That's outstanding, Max. And Ron Moeller, thanks for all that you do if you're watching this, man. Um, that's great advice. So, Max, Max, thanks for spending time with us. Before we uh, cut, um, where can people find you? Because again, you're one of the best accounts out there right now commenting on what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. I recommend everybody follow Max. And then if you want to tell us a little bit more about some of those projects you're working on, that would be good, too. Okay. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Max uh, Morton at 6GDM, six, 6Guns six Don't Miss. That was... Uh, the unit I was <laughs> a part of at the at the one sixtieth, so uh, great Very great nice. group of rocket shooting wild men, and uh, so you can find me on Twitter there. I'm also over at uh, at uh, forwardobserver.com, and they're at uh, info underscore uh, in, intel fo underscore intel. I'm on the daily situational uh, report and the early warning report every day. The early warning report is on the subscriber side a forward observer and the uh, daily essay, the daily situational awareness is on the free side. Uh, on the daily essay, we cover maybe the top four or five uh, critical items and current events that affect Americans, you know, at, at the local level. You know, we don't really care about the price of tea in China unless it's gonna affect you here in the United States. So we're, we'll hit those topics. And then over on the high side, what we call the high side, the early warning report, we do the Indo-Pacific, uh, the uh, Europe, Russia, and we do the domestic uh, sit rep on what's happening here in America. And that includes, you know, civil unrest, social unrest, you know, changes in, in laws that impact Americans. And uh, so you can find me there. 
And I also run Blackmore Technical Services. And it's a security consulting firm for those who uh, have uh, significantly elevated threat models. I, I provide a training courses and consulting for uh, those security issues. And that's kind of a boutique thing. You know, if, if you know about it, you know about it. And if you need it, you know, you know where to find me. And I think it's going to be increasingly useful for high net worth individuals and, and, and key personnel. I think that's going to be something that, you know, will be important in the future ahead. Guys, uh, be sure you follow Max and, and check out what he's doing. Max, really appreciate you coming on and being so generous with your time today. I hope it's something we're going to have to do again real soon. And um, guys, if you like this content, be sure you hit like and subscribe if you want to see more stuff like this. This is the Base Brotherhood with Alex signing off. Alex, thanks a lot.